Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Richard Zacks at Hennepin County Library, Southdale. Richard Zacks is an accomplished journalist and historian, best known by many for his gripping, well-researched books on the topics relating to the golden age of piracy. These include The Pirate Hunter, the true story of Captain Kidd, billed as a rare, authentic pirate story for grown-ups, and The Pirate Coast, Thomas Jefferson, the First Marines, and the Secret Mission of 1805, written in 2005. A bestseller that Kirkus Reviews lauds as an intense adventure narrative peppered with exquisitely researched, character-enhancing anecdotes. Zach's expanded his investigative lens in 2012 with Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's doomed quest to clean up sin-loving New York. His newest, Chasing the Last Laugh, tells a tale of a round-the-world comedy tour that took American humorist Mark Twain as far from home as Australia and South Africa. Booklist recommended it highly as a fast-paced and revealing look at a neglected episode in Twain's life. Zax makes use of slides in his Club Book discussion, which can be found at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Richard Zacks. Thanks for coming. This is my second time being in, um, in Minnesota. The other time I was here was for Garrison Keillor's last show in the 80s. There was a last show back in the 80s. Yeah, um, I covered it for something, TV Guide or somebody. Um, but let's jump right in here. Um, this is Mark Twain at breakfast in Olympia, Washington. And it's August 1895. And don't you love that hair? I mean, I am so jealous of that hair. That is amazing hair. I want to tell you about the Mark Twain that not everybody knows. Um, most people think of the witty author of Huckleberry Finn who fought racism and imperialism, and that's all true. But he was also an eternal bad boy. He fought his own demons, and he liked to drink, smoke, and curse. He was married to an heiress who paid all the bills, and he also loved to gamble on pool and poker, and unfortunately for him, he loved to gamble on startup companies. Um, and all these traits eventually caught up with him. Can you imagine being literally the comedy kingpin of the United States and it all falls apart at age 60? Twain was dead broke in 1895. He had lost all his money, but what's worse, he had lost all his wife's money. I cannot imagine losing all my wife's money. <laughs> there are torture instruments not invented that she would experiment on me. I mean, really, that's the worst part of it. And so after a while, the family of Samuel L. Clemens could no longer afford to live 
in their beautiful house in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, they had, it's a quirky, wonderful house. I mean, Twain did a lot of things that, you know, he had a little balcony specially built so that when the butler called and told him there were guests coming that he didn't want to see, he would step out on the balcony and then the butler would say, Mr. Twain is not in right now, you know. Um, he, uh, he had a window built over a fireplace so that the flames would go up and the snow, he could watch the snow coming down. Um, they had a loopy family life and um, they had lots of pets. And he had three dogs and he named one, I know, he named another dog, you know, and he named the third dog, don't know. Um, he also enjoyed acting with his daughter Susie. Um, that's one of their family productions. Um, they were rich. They had a Tiffany drawing room. The family had seven servants, including a butler and a coachman, but it wasn't enough for Twain. The poor Missouri boy wanted everything. He wanted to be a funny writer, to be a literary author, to be a family man, to be a poker-playing rogue. Um, he was so full of conflicting desires. He liked down-home folk, but he also wanted to be like a Rockefeller or a Vanderbilt. He wrote, quote, few of us can stand prosperity, another man's I mean. <laughs> he was a magnet for con men. What a talker he is, he wrote of J the inventor James W. Page. He could persuade a fish to come out and take a walk with him. Um, so Twain was losing his shirt. Um, I couldn't resist. Mark Twain had a lethal combination for an investor. He had moonshot enthusiasm and absolutely no patience for details. He once asked an accountant to send him a profit loss statement that even his daughter could understand. Gene was two years old at the time. Um, Twain thought the following invention would change the world. Um, probably have no idea what you're looking at. Most people don't. It's the page typesetter. It weighed almost four tons. It had 18,000 movable parts, and it was supposed to revolutionize printing if it worked. At first, Twain called James Page the, quote, Shakespeare of mechanical invention. But by the end, after it kept breaking down over and over again, uh, Twain began fantasizing about capturing a certain part of Page's anatomy um, in a steel trap and watching him slowly bleed to death. Um, the page typesetter cleaned out Twain's bank account, and the next investment, starting his own publishing company, put him $80,000, or the equivalent of $2.4 million, in debt. Um, he had a blockbuster start with the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant and Huckleberry Finn. And, and actually, you'd think Huck Finn was the big, his big success. It was actually this book that was uh, these books. Um, he handed out the largest check in the then in the history of American publishing to the widow of Ulysses S. Grant, a check for $200,000. I mean, the company couldn't have started out any better, but it all went downhill really fast. And uh, he had expected to pay himself very fat royalty. He wanted 90% of net profit on any book he wrote, which is, you know, unthinkable. Royalties today are like 15%, you know, of, uh, of list. And, but over time, he wound up with no royalties and bankruptcy. Here's... Um, the, the, the final Webster ad, and um, you can see that maybe these, uh, some of these book titles are not exactly stories from the rabbis, um, tenting on the plains, the art of sketching. It wasn't a very strong list. Um, and so he basically went bankrupt 
and the headlines, he had this reputation as a very successful author, and he had a reputation as a man who owned his own publishing company, and, success, and all of a sudden, headlines said, Mark Twain fails, front page news, no joke, failure of humorist. I mean, it was brutal for him, because he had kept up the facade of success. And so here's this literary superstar who's being very publicly embarrassed, and now he had two advisors for his uh, bankruptcy. This is Henry Huddleston Rogers, who was uh, one of the wealthiest men in America. He was at uh, Standard Oil, he created Federal Steel, he was uh, Rockefeller's right-hand man, and his nickname was Hellhound. He was such a tough businessman. And so he's a robber baron, he wants to play hardball with the creditors. He wants to offer 10 cents on the dollar. Um, Twain's other advisor is his heiress wife, Livy, who has absolutely no business experience. Um, Livy wrote, I want the creditors to know that we have their interest at heart much, much more than our own. And Livy wanted to pay them in full as soon as possible. Never bet against the wife. Twain agreed to pay everyone back in full, and so now he needs to make big money fast. His books are not selling. His most recent title was something called American Claimant. Um, and the quickest way for him to do it is to go out on a stand-up comedy tour. So he absolutely, from the bottom of his heart, did not want to go. It's a little known fact about Mark Twain that he dreaded public speaking in front of large audiences. It wasn't so much stage fright as humiliation fright. He didn't want to play the clown. He said to a friend that once an audience sees you stand on your head, they expect you to remain in that position forever. Um, his performing style was deadpan. He never smiled. He talked slow. A lot of times he would just go like this. I've tried on, to imitate it sometimes and I, it's just, I, you can't, I can't do it. It's so slow, you have to wait for the nub, he called it. Wait for the kicker. And uh, he borrowed lines from his own stories. He basically was doing his own greatest hits performance. And he had lines like, the weather was the weather was too rainy for school and just rainy enough to go fishing. Or, to be good is noble, to teach others to be good is nobler and no trouble at all. Um, so here it is, July 1895, he's 59 years old, he's about to go on the road with his wife and one of his daughters. Three creditors are suing him, stress has given him an infected boil on his thigh, he can't walk, he wants to do a dozen warm-up speeches, but only has time for two. He wrote to Hellhound, nothing in this world can save it from being a shabby, poor, disgusting performance. Pray for me. So Twain would, would be gone for a year on tour. He'd do 122 performances in 71 cities across the United States and the fading British Empire, in Australia, New Zealand, India, and South Africa. It was an exhausting trip, even for a young man and he would spend 98 nights at sea on steamships and almost 50 days ill from coughs and other illnesses. He would travel by rail, rickshaw, mule-drawn carriage, and by elephant, and his sightseeing boat would wander close to the floating corpses on the Ganges, and Zulus would do war dances for him in South Africa. First stop, Cleveland, Ohio, July 15, 1895. A disaster. No one had told him that a pair of newlyweds were going to perform 40 minutes of violin and flute music while he stewed in the wings. And no one had told him that 500 newsboys would be sitting behind him on bleachers in free seats, and there would be no chaperone. 
Um, Twain would later complain bitterly to Hellhound about all the horseplay and the skylarking, um, which I find a little ironic from the creator of Huck Finn. That he, I mean, what do you expect? Um, Twain judged this night, quote, a dead failure and described the perspiring audience as paying a dollar apiece to go to hell in this fashion. Um, but the cross-country trip would improve quickly and he started feeding off audiences laughing and clapping and paying. Um, this is an authentic 1890s dollar, Bank of Butte. Um, and we caught a, we as the future generations caught a very lucky break. Twain's lecture agent, a major James Pond, brought along a Kodak box camera. And he was not a great photographer. He didn't pose everything. So we got very intimate, candid shots of Twain traveling. So here, here's one of the first images. Um, this is um, Twain and his wife on a Great Lakes steamer. And Livy is telling her husband to put on an overcoat. And if you look on the back of the, um, the photograph, the caption says, it was 98 degrees. So they had a great marriage, but a lot of it revolved around Livy telling him to mind his manners. She called him youth, um, which she didn't especially like the name Sam, and no one called him Mark, so she just called him youth for the, right, up, right into his 60s. Um, Twain ve tried very hard not to swear in front of her. I mean, she, she had wanted him to quit smoking, drinking, and cursing, and he didn't give up the smoking, he didn't give up the drinking, and he tried to give up the cursing. Um, and um, you know the rest of us can say an occasional damn. He actually, I think it helped his creativity. He had to get angry, but he couldn't use the words that the rest of us could use. So um, they began their trek, a trek across the United States, and Twain squeezed in a little sightseeing whenever he could. This next one is one of my favorite uh, pictures, um, and this might resonate in this part of the. This is a Norwegian family. It's a shanty town. Um, it's outside Great Falls, Montana, and that's an authentic tar paper shack. And if you look carefully, you can see that Twain is holding a couple of kittens. And Twain loved cats. Um, he often wore a family cat draped around his neck. And um, his daughter, Clara, once gave some sage advice. She said, if you had to interrupt her father while he was writing, be sure to carry a kitten. Um, so later in the trip, um, Twain, the family was staying in a rundown hotel, paper-thin walls, surly servants. Twain did not sleep well. He wrote in his notebook, early in the morning, a baby began, pleasantly, didn't mind baby. Then the piano, played by either the cat or a partially untrained artist. <laughs> Most extraordinary music, three right notes to four wrong ones, but played with eager zeal, old tunes of 40 years ago, and considering it was the cat, for it must have been the cat, it was a really marvelous performance. It convinced me that a cat is more intelligent than people believe. So being Mark Twain, he got certain perks while he was traveling, got to ride up you know, in the front on the Great Northern, but he also had to put up with some of the annoyances that the rest of us did. So this is, um, he's in Crookston, Minnesota. This is the platform at the station. It, they arrived there at 4 a.m. only to discover a handwritten sign that said the, the train would be an hour and 20 minutes late. And the night was chilly and Twain, he erupted. He could be a diva sometimes. He was not amused. And he yelled at his agent and demanded that Major Pond honor his contract and get him traveling. 
So here we have Pond, who is the leading lecture agent in the whole United States, 57-year-old man, wheeling Mark Twain around the station at the break of dawn. And I, what I love is, like, Livy is there. I'm not sure if she's shading her eyes from the sun or she just doesn't want to look at her husband at that moment. And Clara borrowed Pond's camera. So this is Clara's sh shadow as she takes a picture to record it all. And also what I like in this picture is they traveled around the world with all this luggage. There's, if you count, there's 17 pieces, and I think there were six steamer trunks. Um, they had to lug them around the world. So Twain would perform 22 nights and 31 days in North America, and he went from a sick bed in New York to a breakneck schedule on the road, and then back to a sick bed. Um, here he is in bed in Vancouver, Canada. And um, again, you gotta love that hair. Oh, wow. Um, he's suffering from a bad bronchial cough, and if you look carefully in his hand, there's a pipe, that he's smoking a pipe. Um, and he did several interviews in bed. He actually did an interview in Minneapolis at the West Hotel um, in bed. And um, he walked to the opera house here, and I noticed they said that the sidewalk was cedar slabs. Um, but he always worried about interviews, because being a former newspaper man, he knew newspaper men lied. So they also asked the same question in every town. What will your travel book be about? One of my travels, I suppose. And so eventually he got so annoyed by all the um, random questions, uh, by all the repetitive questions, that he wrote in his notebook he was going to answer the next time, my travel book will be about hydrophobia, agriculture, and wallpaper. <laughs> um, the family departed August 23rd, 1895 from Victoria, Canada. And, um, they had survived a grueling schedule. He had made about $4,000, which is about $120,000 in modern currency, but most of it went to hotel, travel, and dining expenses. Uh, because he believed that Livy, being an heiress, she was a coal, coal heiress, should be treated in the, the way she was used to. So they went first class everywhere. So here are a couple bankrupts trying to earn money back, traveling first class around the world. Um, and Twain's holding a long stem pipe there, and he and Major Pond had gone shopping that morning. He bought 500 cigars and four pounds of tobacco for a 25-day voyage. Um, if you do the math, that means he could, he could smoke about 20 cigars a day. Um, Major Pond later wrote a memoir and put the number they bought at 3,000 cigars. Pond said, uh, Twain said of Pond, Pond is not an interesting liar. He is destitute of the sense of proportion. If only his parents had taken the least little pains with his training. So Mark Twain loved cruise ships. He, you know, not surprising for a former Mississippi riverboat pilot. Um, he threw himself into cards, shuffleboard, stargazing, whale watching. Um, but back to those cigars, 500 cigars. Um, nothing was ever easy for Twain, and on this voyage, the captain decided to strictly enforce the rules against smoking indoors, except for in the smoker's lounge. Um, so Twain was furious, because he smoked when he wrote, and he felt like he needed to smoke in his stateroom in order to write. So he had once tried to give up smoking, had limited himself to one cigar a day, and he found himself hunting up larger and larger cigars. Quote, within a month, my cigar had grown to such proportions that I could have used it as a crutch. He gave up that experiment. So now on this ship, 
Um, Twain would have to go up on deck in the rain and the wind to smoke. And he might have made peace with the rules, might have, but there was a little pug dog, a little Pekingese dog on that ship. And Twain wrote that the dog was allowed to, quote, discharge its inexhaustible bowels anywhere on the ship. And Twain vowed that he would break every rule on the ship as long as that pampered dog could roam free. So Twain had a tendency to demonize enemies, such as dogs, captains, business partners, and other writers. He said any ship's library containing no Jane Austen was good, <laughs> even if it contained no books at all. So as the ship approached Australia, Twain became worried about how he would be received there by a British audience. Um, would American humor fly over there? Um, this is um, Sydney, Australia, circa 1895. Um, Twain arrived and he made a very bold choice. He decided he would deliver a poem about Australia, a purposely dreadful poem, an absolutely excruciating poem done straight face with no smile. He would pick a national animal for the Aussies. He decided against the kangaroo or the cuddly koala. He chose the platypus. And he decided to use its Latin name, Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. He said he wished he had named one of his daughters that. So for those of you who don't know, the platypus is a duck-billed, claw-footed, beaver-tailed, egg-laying animal, literally neither fish nor fowl. So he had trouble finding rhymes for all the body parts, so he rearranged the beast. He said that the, the beast would have to cooperate for the poem to work. And, um, Believe it or not, the patter was better than the poem. Anything was better than this poem. You do not want to read this poem. But it was a huge hit down under, and he, uh, he got invited to everything. He was the celebrity of the day, and he was invited to, to the racetrack and to garden parties, and he scored a massive payday. They kept um, selling out the houses. They added extra dates in Sydney. Um, it was just hugely successful. And he got his first glimmer of hope that he could actually pay off his debts. Um, next stop, New Zealand. Uh, Twain, within 15 minutes, fell in love with uh, tattooed faces as soon as he had seen the Maori Indians, I mean the Maoris. And um, he found the designs, quote, flowing and graceful and beautiful. And then after another 15 minutes, he decided that the undecorated European face was a bit unpleasant. So New Zealand didn't have um, too many large cities, so Twain found time for sightseeing, and he liked to see strange animals. So he went to the Natural History Museum in Christchurch and saw the skeleton of the giant moa. I, I love this photograph also. Um, this, this is, you know, obviously not Twain here. This is the man who found the skeleton, and that is the same skeleton that Twain saw inside the museum. Um, it was a, an amazing, amazing bird. It's uh, kind of like a giraffe-like uh, bird and uh, it was only extinct about 500 years. And Twain wondered why it had died out. And he learned there's a native Maori expression as stupid as a giant moa. Um, so Twain was fascinated about that and he wondered, he kind of wondered what it would be like to be kicked by a giant bird like that. So he had his illustrator capture it for him. Um, and Dan Bird might have gotten a little carried away here, Dan Beard. Um, He's got a decapitation going. He's got a geyser of blood coming up. Um, Twain loved, this is probably his favorite illustrator, Twain loved Dan Beard. And because um, his images were subversive and oftentimes Beard succeeded in slipping in a little nudity as well. Um, 
This is actually a very creepy scene. This is an Australian rancher um, who was accused of giving a poisoned Christmas pudding to local aborigines in order to steal their land. And if you read the, the pipe smoke up at the top, it says, uh, wishing you a Merry Christmas. This is a very dark, dark image. Um, Twain got lucky on this trip around the world. For, for a bulk of the trip, from Australia on through the end of the trip, he had the son of his lecture agent as his pal. This is Carlisle Smythe. And uh, he shepherded the Clemens family for, for nine months, and he played a lot of cards and billiards with Twain. And um, if Smythe was winning, Twain just simply changed the rules. Um, and now, Twain was turning 60 and was a bit obsessed with his loss of youth. And he thought God should have considered cutting off the entire human race at the age of 30, because everyone treasures their youth and looks back on it longingly. He said one night at a banquet, quote, old age has its own value, but that is to other people, not to those who have it. <laughs> Next stop, India. Um, so Twain had worked for hard for six months, but he really hadn't paid that much of his debt back. And um, he had gotten sick again. He has another chest cold, but he absolutely fell in love with India. His, his notebooks just brim with this enthusiasm. It's, he said later that it would, he would call India the only foreign land I ever daydream about or deeply long to see again. Um, he arrived at his hotel in Bombay and immediately loved the view out of his window, uh, juggler and snake charmer. Um, he loved the unpredictability of India. And this is a rope bridge with a man going across it. Um, you just never knew what you were going to see. He, he was amazed by all the traffic in the streets and the crowded sidewalks. Um, holy Brahmin bulls. And Twain admired their freedom to go anywhere. They actually could walk into stores and people wouldn't stop them. They'd go into houses. They could eat what they wanted to eat. Um, and since Twain was in debt, he was very jealous of the holy men, who he said they could just lie around and make money. Um, so Twain visited the holy city of Benares, which is today Varanasi, and um, he witnessed the women bathing in the holy Ganges. And he was amazed that the Hindu women were so adept at spinning out of a wet sari and into a dry one without revealing any bronze, as he put it. And he sounded a tad annoyed by that. Um, so he visited a mosque with these very tall, slender towers, actually 142 feet tall, and they dominate the skyline, and he climbed the endless spiral staircase going to the top. And here is a typical sightseeing episode with Mark Twain. With the holy city unfurled beneath him, uh, he happened to notice a gray monkey scampering along the parapets and making long leaps over the rooftops. And Twain wrote, that monkey got me so nervous that I couldn't look at the view. Monkey came within an ace of losing his life a dozen times, and I was so troubled about him that I would have shot him if I had anything to do it with. <laughs> so, in India, Twain found himself again and again having to confront his opinions of another person's religion. He decided that one couldn't be expected to believe another man's beliefs, but he should respect them. He also judged it wrong for missionaries to try to impose their beliefs on someone else. He wrote in his notebook that he had heard that Christian missionaries had achieved little success converting Hindus, but that they had scored some breakthroughs with monkeys. <laughs> he wrote, quote, in two years at a cost of $60,000, four monkeys converted 
and 11 hopefully interested. <laughs> While in India, um, Twain received one of the most amazing perks, I think, of celebrities. You know, forget about the bottles of vodka and the courtside seats and the hotel rooms and all the rest of it. Um, British railway officials set aside 35 miles of downhill track in the Himalayas for Mark Twain to use as a private roller coaster. Yeah. So he's at Darjeeling at 7,000 foot elevation. And um, those aren't clouds, by the way, at the top there. Those are snow-covered mountain peaks. I mean, he is up there. And some of the tallest mountains in the world, not far from Mount Everest. And the railway was considered an engineering marvel. Um, it needed four reverse direction zigzags. Literally, the car had to go up this way and reverse direction and go this way. And it needed uh, four of these kind of loops where they come around and go, go under and through. Um, there's no, no seat belts mentioned anywhere. Um, he went down, the roller coaster they provided was a six-seater open car, canvas back seats, um, with just a handbrake and a, and a guy to run the handbrake for him. Um, and Twain, of course, had to point out to his wife and daughter, a pebble on the track could send them right over the edge. Um, so on February 17, 1896, they zoomed downward. They started in fur blankets and they finished in shirt sleeves. And he wrote, quote, for rousing, tingling, rapturous pleasure, there is no holiday trip that approaches the bird flight down the Himalayas in a handcar. And he later judged that February day in India the single most enjoyable day of his entire trip. Um, so Twain visited South Africa and then he went on to London and he went to London to write his travel book in seclusion. And after about 10 months, the New York Herald uh, ran a piece on June 1st, 1897, headlined, quote, Mark Twain ill in London, sad news about the great humorist, mental and physical collapse, had a checkered career. And a rival paper, the New York Journal, sent a telegram to a young reporter that stated, Quote, if Twain dying in poverty in London, send 500 words. If Twain has died in poverty, send 1,000. Um, so the reporter reached Twain's house on June 1st, 1897. Twain refused to be interviewed, but scribbled a reply that it was his cousin, James Ross Clemens, who was ill. And then he wrote, quote, the report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. So here's the actual note that Twain, Twain handed to that journalist. And over time and retelling, that's morphed into one of the most famous quotes ever. The reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. Um, and this seems like a fitting spot to, uh, to wind to a close. Uh, Twain lived in Europe for two more years and made enough more money from his travel book following the equator to pay his debts. He came home to New York in 1900 to a hero's welcome. Banquets, tributes, awards, his career and reputation revived because he had done this amazing international show, but maybe more because he had actually paid all his debts. Um, this was after the Panic of 1893, and a lot of people you know, used bankruptcy laws and other, other opportunities to not pay, and Mark, Mark Twain paid, and he was really praised for it. And his complete edition came out and started selling very well. His publisher gave him a huge contract, and he once wrote to his daughter, Quote, I can stand considerable petting, born so, Gene. And he got the petting, lots of it, and it's still happening.
With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Richard Zacks and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Mark Twain would rather be known as a humorist or an author. Twain was torn throughout his life whether he wanted to be known as a, a literary figure or whether he wanted to be known as, as a uh, great humorist. And he really preferred the literary figure, believe it or not. And you're never going to believe what he thought his best book was, what he said to his dying day, and his wife said too, and his daughter said, Joan of Arc, Recollections of Joan of Arc. He couldn't fully embrace, occasionally he would say Huck Finn, but he, he couldn't say it every time. He was just so torn. He, he thought he was embarrassing himself when he did these stand-up, because he did tell jokes occasionally, not just one-liners, but he would tell, he did a stutterer-stammerer joke that's all about, you know, he whistles, the stammerer whistles instead of saying it, so you, in your mind you replace it with curse words. So it's kind of, he even did a little vaudevillian kind of, and he, he was embarrassed about that. You know, so I would say uh, he, he would much prefer to have a literary reputation, and the irony of ironies is, the book that he didn't fully embrace is what gave him the reputation. Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, that was almost like a boy's book at the time, is what really put him over the top in terms of future generations. You know, and also in terms of financially, he chased making this huge fortune from the page typesetter and owning his own publishing house, and they let him down, and he wound up making all his money off his complete works, off his books. So, you know, he, he got his dream, but the opposite way he expected. Our next question is how Mark Twain met his wife. It's an odd, at first glance, it seems like an odd marriage. Um, she, Twain, Twain was known mostly for, in, at first, for Innocence Abroad, which was a humorous travel book. And then he wrote Roughing It, and then he wrote A Tramp Abroad. So he was known as this humorist. And on his very first trip, uh, he met a young man that he liked, and the young man had a sister. Uh, Olivia, Olivia Langdon, and um, eventually Twain wrangled an invitation to the family home in Elmira, New York, and she was a very sheltered young woman who had had a very scary accident younger in life, and um, she couldn't walk more than 100 yards at a time for periods of her life, and she, it's so funny to think back, but during the courtship, she had him reading um, the sermons of Henry Ward Beecher. And the idea of Twain reading those sermons and pretending to learn from them. And I mean, she had him not drinking, not smoking, not cursing. She, but I think she was his sort of touchstone to what was acceptable at that time period. And um, I mean, he loved her very much. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And he thought he was marrying into aristocracy almost. So that, that didn't hurt. And he was in a way. She was, her father unfortunately passed away a year after their marriage. And, um, well, first I should tell you, the, his wedding gift was a mansion. He gave him a mansion in Buffalo, came with servants that Twain bragged, they dress better than I do, yeah. And um, unfortunately, his father-in-law died a year into the marriage, and um, she inherited, uh, um, which was a ton of money at the time, a third of a million dollars. You know, there was a million dollar fortune and three siblings. And so he instantly went from being I mean, he had no money. He, he, when, when Innocence Abroad came out, until it became a bestseller, he basically never had any money. So all his, a lot of his stories are all sort of the, the mishaps of trying to chase fortune, his silver mining, and, and the rest of it, so, yeah. 
This audience member wonders what drew Richard Zacks to writing this particular story about Mark Twain. I, you know, believe it or not, I was drawn to the idea of failure at age 60. I mean, I happen to be 61 now. Um, the idea of the man who was one of the most successful men in America, and no one, you read the biographies and they tend to gloss over this period. They, they jump from his success to when he's so, I mean, he's very, very unhappy from 1904 to 1910 when he died. His wife, Livy, kept him sane, and it was so, he just didn't function well without Livy, and she was in seclusion after 1902, and things went downhill, and his expressions are so, they're kind of mean-spirited. There's a fine line with humor, and he drifts over that borderline, and uh, so I was just really, I wanted to see what it was like when he was trying to pick up all the pieces and, and save his life and, and take the trip, and uh, he was really pretty amazing during this period. He, 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 he fought through it, he had such perseverance, and he pulled it off, and uh, you know, it's really impressive. That I just, I feel like some people when they come to the book don't realize that I'm, just from the cover images, they don't realize I'm not gonna do the depressed last six years of Mark Twain's life. This is probably Mark Twain's last huge triumph, this trip. Yeah. This question is about how Mark Twain's daughter's health affected him. I, I didn't put it into the, um, the PowerPoint, but um, it's a very sad story. It's an unbelievable story. So he's finishing up his trip, and it's gone well, and he's excited, and it looks like H.H. H. Rogers is gonna get him a um, complete editions book deal, and things are starting to look up. And um, the two other daughters who didn't take the trip with him, he only went with Livy and Clara, um, are supposed to come and join them in London. And they don't come, they don't arrive. This is the day before telephones, transatlantic telephone. And then um, they write, um, letters start arriving that it, we're just delayed, we're delayed. And um, Livy instantly senses that, that uh, Susie must be ill. And, um, she, wants, she books herself on the next steamer, transatlantic steamer, and it takes seven days in that era to cross the Atlantic. And she's a couple days out on the voyage with her other daughter, and Twain gets the cablegram that says that Susie died. Susie was released today. It says something poetic like that. And Twain has no way to tell his wife. His wife is in the middle of the Atlantic, and he knows she's gonna land to receive this information, and he has no way to tell her. And no one, cabled him any more information. And he didn't, and a letter would take eight days or so. So he's left alone, he doesn't handle being alone very well. He goes dark almost immediately when he's alone. So he's alone in England with this information that his daughter has died. And he, he adored Susie. Susie was probably the cleverest, certainly the wittiest of all the, her letters are just unbelievable. Um, she comes up with it, she wrote a biography of her father when she was 13 that's so perceptive. You know, she actually, she had lines, I mean, this doesn't, she said, she asked him why did he want to, um, why didn't he want to go to church? And he told her, because I would rather listen to myself talk than hear the man up there talk. Oh, but I'm only kidding. And then she wrote, no, he means it. <laughs> yeah. Another audience member asks how Zacks was able to get access to all the research material necessary to write this book. I was at, um, Berkeley, um, Bancroft Library is unbelievable. They have the Mark Twain papers, and what they don't have, they photocopied. So it's pretty much one-stop shopping for any Twain scholar. Uh, they don't put it all out on the internet. They put about a third of it, a half of it out on the internet. But um, luckily for me, they hadn't released the um, notebooks and journals after 1891. 
So in my trip, all takes place from 1895 to 1900. So a lot of the things I was reading really hadn't been put out there. And that was really, I mean, some of the, some of the lines, you know, like maxims that hadn't, I'm, what's one that jumps to mind? Um, if, yeah, I mean, this is a dark one that Livy didn't let him put in. Um, if G, it goes to the effect, if Jesus came back today, there's one thing for certain, he would not be a Christian. You know, and Livy wouldn't let him put that in. Um. This question is about how often Mark Twain sat down to write. What was his process like? It's like that Saturday Night Live thing on Stephen King, you know, da 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 da. Oh, writer's block. Da 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 da. Oh, writer's block. Yeah. He was pretty much like that. He, he, Twain, Twain, and so many of the books we don't talk about, American Claimant, and there's even uh, what uh, the, the Hot Air Balloon, Tom Sawyer Abroad, Tom Sawyer Detective. I mean, unfortunately, the quality, he was so stressed out over business, the quality is just not there. But I think, in a way, you know, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer are so amazing. And I love Innocence Abroad. I would ask anyone in here to read his first book. You know, the first 20 or 30 pages are a little slower, but once you get Pat, he has a line about, um, so what's it, um, he now knows why, um, oh God, he, is there some line, he finds out what the Arab, the Arab boatmen are charging to cross the Sea of Galilee, and it's such an incredible high price, and he goes, now I know why Jesus learned to walk on water. <laughs> I mean, those books are good. This question asker wonders what Mark Twain might think about America today. Oh, God, I, I'm, I'm not capable of putting words in Mark Twain's mouth. I mean, I think he would, he would have a field day, but the question is whether he'd go on Twitter, you know, because he's perfect for Twitter with his maxim-like brain, but he hated to give it away. So I don't think he would, you know, if, you, if there was a way to charge for tweets, he would figure out a way. You know, he didn't allow his performances to be recorded. We do not have one single authentic, we have Mark Twain walking as an old man on some of those vacations, but we don't have one single authentic recording because he thought someone would record it and sell it. You know, a performance tape, wax cylinder performance tape, and he couldn't allow that. So, so uh, Hal Holbrook's doing his best, but you know, we're guessing. Another audience member asks what kind of promotion Twain did for his tour. Yeah, oh, he had to do, in every town, he had to meet with the local newspaper men. And um, he pretty much, he claimed to hate it, but he loved to hear himself talk, so he did just fine. And um, he was pretty much had a comment on everything. And he got in trouble in Australia, he started talking politics. And um, what, that meant half the newspapers loved his performances and half hated them, you know. So something about free trade, because th those were individual colonies then. They hadn't, the Federation hadn't occurred, so. Um, they actually had, you, you had to wake up at four in the morning on your train ride crossing between one state to the next. And that really irritated them, you know, but some of those things don't go over well when a foreigner brings it up, so. They had different gauge um, train tracks between the two different colonies. So you literally had to switch trains, you know, because they couldn't agree on the width of their trains. But anyhow. This question asker inquires about Twain's motivation to stay in England after his tour concluded. That's a good question. It's actually, um, not everyone knows the, the reason. It was because he hadn't paid all his debts, and he was, he was liable to be um, arrested and uh, you know, brought into, brought into you know, criminal, whatever you call it, civil proceedings, and he didn't want the humiliation. So he, he got them all paid, and then he thought he was coming back, and then his other daughter, 
got epilepsy. So then they thought maybe they could, um, uh, that there was cu a cure for it. And he, he really didn't want to be embarrassed by, I, I guess that's not a fair way of putting it, but he really wanted Jean to be cured before they returned home. So did Livy. Yeah. And yeah, Jean came over, Susie had obviously died, and um, so they had two of the daughters together. And they went to a, um, a rest cure up in Sweden, in Sana, Sweden. And um, he writes the most, I think it's one of the funniest letters I've ever read, just describing what this healthcare is like and how horrible the food is and the flies <laughs> and how, you know, they have things called earth closets for, for toilets, you know, with the, you, you literally turn a crank and a pile of earth goes onto your, yeah, and, it's just, he calls it like the village of the damned. <laughs> and, and he says, you know, come, come stay with us, Clara. You know, you'll need no clothes. You know, it's just, just horrible. Another audience member wonders what happened to Twain's other daughters. Uh, well, unfortunately, um, she, she really did have epilepsy and it got bad and they eventually had to institutionalize Jean. And uh, he didn't live with her. After Livy died, he, she was institutionalized for the bulk of the time after Livy died and Twain wasn't with her. And then he decides that maybe she's well enough to come back and in 1909 in, invites her back to his house. He's then living in Reading, Connecticut. And unfortunately she had an epileptic fit in the bathtub on Christmas Eve and drowned. And that was, so that was the year before Twain died. Uh, so Clara outlived and lived for like another 50 years or so. And no, she married a couple times. She married a Jewish pianist, uh, Osip Grabilovich, and um, she had had a crush on him. And Twain was pleased that she had she married him. I, there's some some people su suspect a scandal, which is why the two of them didn't get along. She was very very much a free spirit, and she wanted to be a musician, and she wouldn't follow his orders. And um, but to her wedding in Connecticut, he wore his red Oxford gown. He, he won up the bride. He was in his flowing red robes at her wedding. Yeah, so he was a piece of work. The last question of the night is about the fate of the Twain home in Connecticut. So that beautiful home I showed you earlier, he, um, he, he moved out in 1891. He took this trip in 1895, and he thought they were going to all be happy and move back there around 97 or 98, but then Susie died in the house. The house was vacant, and they needed a quiet place for a rest cure. So Susie actually passed away from spinal meningitis in that house, and Livy said she could never live there again, and none of them could live there again. Just break, as Twain put it, it would break our hearts. So they, but they didn't get organized enough to sell it till something like 1902 or three or something like that. So he claimed it was worth $175,000, which is a ton of money, and uh, they sold it for 28 grand to an insurance executive, so. Still there, you can go visit it. But uh, thank you very much, you. really appreciate it, thank you. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library Southdale event with Richard Zacks. Make sure to catch our next Club Book Podcast with Jamie Ford, who spoke at Scott County Library Prior Lake on Tuesday, March 14th. Jamie Ford made waves in 2009 with Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet a historical fiction debut that charted on the New York Times bestseller list for two full years. His latest book, Songs of Willow Frost, revisits some of the same settings at the height of the Great Depression. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, 
sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.